1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and GoGo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got an hour of science for you now. We have three amazing guests sitting out in the green room, which we will bring in soon. But in the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. It's been a while, pal. It has
3: actually been a long time.
1: What's going on? Good to be back. Oh, you know, just swanning around,
3: conferences, birthday Uh, parties, karate, (laughs) karate tournaments. Karate tournaments. Yeah. You didn't get hurt? No, well my kids at that time, so no. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm you're grading just... this week though. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. you are? Yeah, green belt
1: time. Green belt time. Yeah. Ooh, look out. Yeah. Hope you get your shit kicked out of you. Otherwise you won't deserve it. Uh well you're at, you're at a good school. You're not at the buyer belt school. There's a lot of buyer belt schools. Yeah, so no, none there. of that action. No, you're um you're actually gonna have Got to earn it. Yep. Good. Speaking of uh yellow belts, Chris K.P.? <laughs> <laughs> I got to say that uh,
2: if you, if you're actually doing, if you're actually judging, you're assessing, right? This is, you're judging. you you that's what's going on. It makes a lot more sense to me if you did get paid for that, wouldn't it? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't buy belt make sense?
3: Just well, economically. No, no I'm it?
2: going for my belt.
3: Yeah, he's oh, the, oh, he's right. a, oh you're, you're in there. Yeah. He's the beltie, and you're yeah. not paying for this.
1: No, oh, no well, well,
3: I'm paying for it physically, potentially.
1: I guess. Yeah, good. But, yeah, yeah. yeah, his you... wife's paying someone to belt him up to get the belt. Yeah, that's almost like, uh, that's like paying a hitman. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it'll be good. When is it?
2: (laughs) Actually, now I think it Wednesday night. Oh, Wednesday, Wednesday, so we'll see you next Sunday,
1: so you could be black and
3: blue. Yeah, well, depends how good my defences are. And green.
1: (laughs) And green. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well played. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, I love it. I love it. Well, you know okay. I'm into it. Uh, we've got, uh, some science news though we have to get through. So, um, Chris KP, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, very happily.
2: Um, let me just, um, uh, I'd like to familiarize, um, our listeners with one and a half concepts. The concept, the main concept, the one is stability, which is basically, uh, the, the how easy or not easy uh, something can be disturbed. So if you've got a, you know, I don't know, a bottle sitting on a, maybe a hundred green bottles on a wall, for example, they have a certain level of stability. It takes a certain force to change their sitting on a walledness. Um, and that's static stability. There is dynamic stability, which is the same idea, except that something's moving. That's Hmm. essentially you need to know. Now, the reason that matters, and I want you to picture a horse here, if you will, a horse can stand on four legs, static stability, really well, actually, for a long time. Yeah. And in fact, Hmm. if you get catch, see a horse trotting or cantering or galloping, it can do that, and it's quite mm. hard to disturb mm. too, and that's, it's very dynamically stable. And some animals sleep standing up. Yeah, and fly standing mm. up, and well, not standing as so much as flying. You they sleep fly flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Albatross do this, yeah, yeah and yeah. swimming yeah. as well, yeah. Um, yeah. Not the same animals, obviously, no. probably. Um, uh, what's interesting about this, of course, is that a horse can change its movement from a trot to a canter to a gallop really, really smoothly. Uh, and remain very, very stable, which is in itself not especially interesting. I mean, it's kind of cool, but in itself it, it just makes sense. What's perhaps more interesting that comes out of a paper um, from Tom Wyman and his and his team published in <laughs> Frontiers in Zoology um, is that cockroaches do the same thing cockroaches can change the way their feet move in order to move them about. that is their gait, and they can do it at speed and they can do it on slippery surfaces. Hmm. So when you've got that cockroach that sort of you think you can catch, it's not really moving that quickly then it suddenly does across the kitchen lino. It's because it can actually change the way it moves at speed um, to change its actual gait.
1: Without losing... So there's no sort of Scooby-Doo yeah. activity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not yeah. doing that. No, exactly. When I think of lack of stability, <laughs> I think of Scooby-Doo because was that, whenever they change speed, things go haywire. <laughs> oh.
2: Yes, I know. It's, um, it's all about sound effects. Today. <laughs> What's cool about this course is that what it tells us is that if you want to create you know robots that mimic cockroaches and who doesn't let's face it that's yeah. obviously one of the <laughs> one of the great aims of humanity if you want to create robots that mimic cockroaches what you need to be to give the robots is the capacity to not just move faster and slower but change the way they do it change the way their limbs interact
1: interact at speed in order to maintain stability cuz I will say when someone yes. first said to me that an amazon par- parcel could be delivered to me by a drone yeah. i thought that's pretty cool but if a team of cockroaches <laughs> came up my driveway <laughs> With it on their back. Yes. Or ants. Yeah, sure. Like that would be cool. That would be that would be very cool. I think
2: I, I'd be very, very... See, again, well, let's stop learning from nature and start just using it, using right? It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Amazon's army of cockroaches.
1: Well, it was that, that thing where earthquake, uh, you know, with earthquake detection after there's, you know, buildings collapse and so forth, yes. they use a variety of different yes. sorts of animals and and robots that are based on animals to investigate these scenes. And you, initially it was dogs and stuff they used, but there mm. were some examples recently where they, they used... And I think they were... I'm pretty sure they were remote-controlled cockroaches. They weren't... Actual ones. But they had little cameras on them. And I just remember seeing that thinking, ah, oh, humans have finally worked it out. Yeah. Cockroaches can pretty much go anywhere. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah. they're awesome. Even robotic yeah. cockroaches. Yeah. And they're all, awesome.
2: yeah, they're also very, very low to the ground. So they have yeah. a great center of mass. Yeah, I think the bottom line is we're slow learners. We are. It, that's the. We're very slow in this, <laughs> but yeah. that's okay. Some slower than others. Uh I wasn't speaking, the... of. Yeah, speaking of, speaking <laughs> of. So this is the problem we have: reverse order.
3: So normally it's I know. As I me know. to Chris. No, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. This, is, this is
1: great. It's the second last show of the year, and, and I'm not, not to as quick, quick-witted as Chris either. So I
3: haven't got a witty retort, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you got it. Chris is. Qu- it's like most things, you know. He's quick but low quality. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. you, you're slower, but your quality's high. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. It's a fair point. Wow.
2: <laughs> wow, I'm not saying
3: anything. I'm not saying anything. What do you got for us? Uh, I want to talk about kayaks and musical kayaks, actually. So one of the issues, I guess, we have with environmental impacts is actually measuring those impacts. Mm. Um, so this is a great story, I think, that really combines a couple of passions of mine, and that's environmental research, but also um, citizen science and art, actually. Mm. So... Basically, um, a group of people have got together. Um, This was published in PLOS Biology, and they've invented a sonic kayak. And what that actually means is that it's a normal kayak, but it's actually got a whole bunch of sensors stuck to it. And what actually happens is as you're paddling your kayak along, it's sensing things like temperature, um, noise as well. So we know noise pollution is a big issue Mm -hmm. for the environment now. Mm -hmm. It actually changes how animals um, sense their environment, but also respond. Um, And so it senses all these things as you're sort of paddling along, but then it actually generates music. So it takes those measurements and actually converts them into musical notes. Um, So you essentially got experimental music, and I'm sure if Chris wants to sort of imitate what experimental music sounds like. Well, it depends
2: on the environment, obviously, so I wouldn't presume. presume. (laughs) So...
3: Um, And so you basically can use this as an art installation, but at the same time be collecting, like, genuine scientific information that's actually quite hard to get in a lot of cases. So it's a really cool citizen science project. Where are they deploying this? Um, Well, this is from the States, but I guess you could deploy it anywhere. Um, So, you know, you can put a kayak, obviously, on any
2: water body. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like it would be ideal for for Mona. Because they have the Mm, Derwent right next to them. Yeah, right right next door. There you go. Yeah, so so, so. I thought it was a very cool
3: idea to actually get these kayaks out there and get people collecting data. Um, Obviously, with climate change, we know that's going to affect environments a whole range of ways, including aquatic um, systems. So changing the water temperature and so forth, but also your noise pollution. So So, a very cool idea.
2: But a person is in it. Yeah, Yeah, it's just a normal kayak, person paddling along.
3: But it's got a whole bunch of sensors stuck onto it. So they had a hackathon. So it's where you get a whole bunch of geeks in a room and I can call them geeks because I am a geek myself. And, um, and yeah, and they basically developed this with things like Raspberry Pis and so yeah, forth yeah. and built these really cool kit that you can put onto a kayak and collect all this amazing information.
2: Very nice. I, I love the fact that because it's, it's essentially electronic information as well, it could be shared between kayaks from
1: around the world. You know? Very cool. I, it is, it's super cool stuff because it doesn't require the researchers involved to allocate all their time doing the sensing themselves. They're getting, no, out, they're exactly. getting the citizens involved to yep. do the collection. Which so is it's
3: all great. open source, the whole lot. So yeah. anyone can basically get this stuff off the internet and build their own and go out and start collecting data, which is really cool.
1: I'm not sure I feel comfortable with the idea of a geek knowing karate, though, as a side note. That... That's kind of like a Stanley, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick kind geek, of film. Sure.
3: I think we all agree Geek is the New Black, right? We've known that for
1: a long time, surely. <laughs> See, I'm so not sure that we all agree with that. No, I, I think I think, I think think Geeks agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> almost all agree Geeks agree with that, yeah. Which yeah. I'm not saying Chris and I aren't, but, you know, we, no. you know we're kind of... On, right. We're just in denial, so... Hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, uh... Gonna move <laughs> past that. Speaking of denial, yes. uh, good segue again. From Chris. rivers to the yeah. denial. Yes. No, um, I saw something during the week, which, uh, I just, I just love seeing this. It's a subtle thing, but for me, it just really, you know, two things made my week this week. Um, the first was, uh, when Boeing came out and said, Hey, Elon Musk, screw you, pal. We're getting to Mars first. Mm-hmm. And I was like, bring on the 1960s all over yeah, again the space race yeah. because at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a real push for that sort of exploration and actually going into, you know, we do a lot of local by spa- what I would call local space or near space kind of exploration, which is basically just orbital stuff, really. I mean, the International Space Station's orbital sp- um, space. And I remember when we had, um, we had Gene Cernan on, the late Gene Cernan on it just over a year ago, yeah. and he made this great comment about the difference between utilizing the environment of space and exploring space. And he said, what we're doing at the moment, is utilizing the Mm. environment of space which i thought was a beautiful way Mm. to put it whereas what he did you know when they went to the moon was explore space and yes we've got lots of robotic probes around the solar system which is fantastic but as humans exploring space we haven't been doing that for quite a while in fact you would argue since you know the early 70s when the apollo missions ended we haven't explored space as human beings and and you know you, you know as an ecologist there's 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 no comparison between a human actually looking at something and examining it compared to getting a you know a sure. Mars rover mm-hmm. to do it. Yep. There's just a total difference in our ability to do that. So, this is interesting having these these two major um, firms sort of. Doing, you know, and I, I just think of Elon Musk as the Thunderbirds of the. Of the you know what I mean, <laughs> so does yeah. he. Well, well, you know, relanding <laughs> rockets. It's, I'm Is, sorry, it's the Thunderbird one. Um, it's cool stuff, but but actually getting some of the other big aerospace companies saying, well, you know mm. what, we're going to beat you there. We're going to put money into this, and we're going to yeah. because the side technologies that come out of this are phenomenal. Mm, yeah, yeah, Branson's um, trying to get there too, right? Isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's got something there, and then there's this other group um, called NASA. Yeah. That, you know, and they have their plans and, you know, the Chinese won't be far behind them. So I think we're getting into that period where it'll be really interesting just to see how quickly we can do some of this stuff. I assume someone's taking bets to see who gets there first. Oh, there's got to be we something. We are now. There's got to yeah. be something. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the odds? I will
2: run a book quite happily <laughs> on
1: that. I'm very happy to do that. I think we could. So that, that was cool. And I think there was something about gay marriage this week, which, is uh, pretty big news. It's familiar. Maybe so, familiar. Yeah, yeah. So. About we'll, time. Well, see, my dad's a, yeah. cel- my dad's a wedding celebrant. And so he's been waiting. So for he's the excited. Thing 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 he's thing he's thing super thing. excited. I just, just <laughs>
2: exciting for the you know for the change, <laughs> for not the dollars.
1: No, he's super excited about it because um, one of the things. So he does a lot of um, uh, what they call them commitment ceremonies, which yep. is all he's been able to do. And with the exception of a few sentences that you know have yep. to legally be in marriages, yeah. they're basically the same. You know, yep. like it's yeah, the same I'm shit. Sure. Yeah. And I know it frustrates him that you know you, you get all these couples come through and he can't he can't yep. marry them, and yep. and yet you know when he does one of those. One day in a normal uh, normal marriage, a standard marriage, the following marriage. traditional marriage, um, the following day, they basically look exactly the same yeah. from his point yeah. of view. And there's a little bit more paperwork from one than the other. Like, it's, it's kind of... So he's, he's very happy about happy that. Happy days. So it's a good yeah. thing. And, yeah, and as really I said to him, I said, you know, you're going to be book solid. You know, yeah, because it's going to be busy. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be a busy <laughs> time. Um, so, yeah, extraordinary stuff. But um, all good. I'm pretty excited about the Boeing thing, though. Bring it on. Bring. It on. I, love, I love a good challenge, so... Let's see if, uh, you know, I'll give a hundred bucks to a company that can do it by next year. <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you do that. I figure my money's safe. <laughs> Unless they get some of those stooges who are happy to go there and live there for the rest of their life, which I hate to say folks, but that's just a couple of weeks. Like it's not going to be for that long. So yeah. you want, you want to go to the company that's got a return ticket. Yes. So, anyway, we're going to take a break for some music folks and we'll be back in a moment talking about some really great local ecology stuff that, um, we heard about earlier in the weeks. There you are listening to Einstein and Gerger on three to four. We have our first guest in the studio today. It's Jacinta Humphrey. She's a PhD candidate at La Trobe University and a member of the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria. Jacinta, welcome to Triple R.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Um, It's great to have you in. I've got my son William in here too because he's uh, made some observations that are relevant to what we're talking about. Um, First of all, there's this elusive swamp skink. Tell us a bit about that because this is something that uh, I suppose people become unaware that these things just disappear from the landscape. What's been going on with this thing?
0: Yeah, definitely, especially um, for elusive species, if you will, because they are very shy. They tend to be hidden. Mm. People don't often see them. So um, these guys are actually, they're a threatened species here in Victoria and they're largely threatened by expanding urbanisation. Um, so, unfortunately, we have a lot to do with that. Um, they tend to live in these swampy areas that are out around Melbourne's urban fringe, and obviously that's where a lot of our developments are occurring. So, they're very quickly losing their habitat and kind of disappearing.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, my son and I were down Mornington Way, because this is where you, you've seen yes. these things. Yep. yeah, Mornington and, Peninsula. And, um, and, William, what did you see when you were down there? So, Talking to the mic, buddy. So, I was running, and this little black-yellow... Um, and brown
4: little lizard that i thought was a rat because it was growing really fast (laughs) just ran straight past and it was quite long the tail was about i don't know three inches long and that took up like most of a body of a small skink yep and it was and then it had these black stripes right along the side and it ran really fast and it didn't seem to be near anything
1: you almost, yeah, you almost stepped on it. Yeah, I
4: nearly stepped on it, and then yep. it just ran into a bush and hid itself. Disappeared. Yeah, yeah okay.
1: And was this, is this one, do you think, or is it related? Potentially,
0: yeah. yeah. If, it, if it's got um, quite a long tail, that's one of um, the more obvious characteristics of this hmm. kind of skink. Its um, its tail's about two-thirds the total length of its body. Right. So they can get up to about 30 centimetres long, but its tail can be even 20 centimetres in length. So very long tails. Um, and yeah, if it's got those black stripes down the side and little specks of gold, bit of brown, that it's potentially one of these skinks. Yeah, very mm-hmm. exciting.
2: Question about, um, so you say they're threatened. Yes. What do they do in the ecosystem? What's their bit?
0: What's their bit? Good question. Um, they're, they're kind of an unusual skin can, the fact that they actually live in burrows. Mm. So they will excavate their own burrows, um, in kind of sandy soil or, or even kind of wet soil in many places. Um, or they can actually also use crayfish burrows as well along the sides of streams or estuaries. Um, they're, they're living mm. in those kind of areas. So I guess they're.
2: And what do they eat?
0: What do they eat? Um, main, they're mainly carnivorous. So they're, they're feeding off insects, but so also some plant mosquitoes. much flies and mosquitoes. Potentially, yeah. Let's
1: just mm. save these animals then. Absolutely. Mm. No, yeah, <laughs> and, and in terms of, so how long has it been since, or, or what sort of gap was there where we thought, hang on, they're just gone? How, how long was it?
0: Um, well, they, they were never considered to be extinct or completely wiped out, but um, this is the first time they've been recorded within the National Park on mm. Mornington Peninsula over the last 30 years. Um, So this may well be a very exciting rediscovery or it is potentially just due to the fact that we haven't been doing enough surveys over the last thirty years to keep track of where they are and to be monitoring mm, the population.
1: Mm. And in terms of the surveys, what I mean, what does that entail? How do you I mean, you know, William saw one walking along the, yes. the shoreline. Um, but you know, beyond that sort of anecdotal evidence that yes. I'm sure you guys probably get a lot of, um what does the surveying entail?
3: Yeah,
0: so that's actually um what my honours project was looking at. I was comparing different monitoring methods for this species because they are so difficult to find. Um, and traditionally they've used something called an Elliot trap, which is an aluminium box that folds, um, and you has, it has a little trap door, and you put some food in there to attract the animal, and once it goes inside to eat, the door flips up, and mm-hmm. they get um, confined within that box. Um, so that's kind of what's been traditionally used, but they weren't getting a lot of success. So in my honours, I compared those boxes to um, terracotta roof tiles, and also something called remote cameras. So they're actually motion detecting cameras that, um, were initially used by hunters in the US to right. kind of figure out where, say, stags would be so they can go and hunt them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've now been adapted and they're being used quite a lot in environmental
1: research. T- terracotta roof tiles?
0: Yes, yes.
1: What, what's got, what, what, does so, this drop, drop a tile in the skunk? You basically you put
0: the tile out there, and the skinks will come once they get used to them being within the environment. The skinks will come and they'll hide underneath them. Oh, really? Because um the tiles heat up and they're really quite attractive. Yeah, Yeah, because they want to go and they want to heat up in the morning to get some energy. So they get in underneath these tiles, and obviously you need to be right place, right time. But you walk along and you flip over the tile, and hey, if you get lucky, there's a skink.
1: Otherwise, there's a whole lot of cockroaches.
0: Yes, (laughs) definitely.
1: (laughs) Definitely insects in there. You get you get all sorts of reptiles though, yes, like, Have you, yeah, had, have absolutely. you picked up a couple And found a couple of snakes under there it?
0: Never found a snake luckily um, But I've definitely had blue tongues and, yeah. and smaller skinks as well I
1: like to seed things in people's minds So every time you pick up on these tiles Now I want you thinking snake
0: <laughs> you has just got to make sure it's got legs yeah, That's
1: right <laughs> Yeah, I find these stories fascinating
3: and particularly because I think there's kind of a, a misconception, if you like, that there's not that many species within big urban areas and yes. particularly threatened species. And yes. there's a lot of research obviously coming out now showing that's just so far from the truth. So yeah, Melbourne, definitely. as an example, has a huge number of threatened species mm. living among us. So I always get really excited about these stories. And I guess that kind of brings up the question of what else might we be missing? So if we're missing these little brown skinks under our noses, so to speak, what else are we missing? And you mentioned the camera traps and Mm -hmm. I've been doing work with colleagues as well looking at, you know, using camera traps for reptiles. Um, I'm not sure how well they worked for you in this case, but you know, is there other things in those areas that you're also looking for that we might have not seen for a while and
5: and so forth?
0: Um, not so much in the Mornington Peninsula, but definitely in some of these Melbourne urban fringe areas, they, they do overlap with other species that are, um, are also threatened. So things like growling grass frogs may also be in similar kinds of environments, um, potentially even bandicoots as well, um, and other kinds of small reptiles that people are just not very familiar with.
1: Mm. It's, it's interesting, um, you know, following on from that, the... Yeah, you know, urbanization also brings in a lot of our sort of pets, you know, so yes. cats and so forth. Absolutely. I mean how does how does that um sort of I guess that sort of forcing pressure from I don't know, do cats eat skinks? Do yes. I mean these these little bugs are pretty <laughs> aggressive, right? I mean do they fight back a lot? Like they to...
0: they are. Um not sure if they're as aggressive as, say, Godzilla as they have been touted <laughs> yeah, recently. That, yeah. <laughs> um but they're, they're mainly aggressive to each other, really. Oh, they're, okay. they're very territorial. Right. So if you've got one skink that's set up their little home range and another one comes in, that they will potentially fight over that space, but they're not really going to be aggressive to any other species.
1: Sort of like the Tasmanian devil for Victoria.
0: Yeah, kind of, yeah. but just a reptile bit. <laughs> beat,
1: beat the crap out of each other, but they're yeah. okay for everything else. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's- yeah, so so the cats then presumably and things and well, cats and dogs and other you know yeah they're, they're be a big um,
0: yeah cats and foxes are definitely listed as um, some issues with this species. They will go out there and they will eat them, and obviously they are exotic species to Melbourne, um, so they're they're not evolutionary. Mm. Like, they haven't evolved with them. They don't really know how to cope with
1: them. And how quickly will the population breed up, do you think? I mean, is this something where... I mean, with a lot of reptiles, you know, they can breed very very rapidly and change their population base very quickly if the environment if the conditions right. are yes. such here that, that it's, it's viable for them to do that.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine that provided they've got enough habitat, they, they should be okay. It's just a matter of figuring out where they are mm. um, and making sure that that habitat is protected into the future, that we're not developing houses on it.
1: Yeah, and the the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria, yes. I, I, I'm fairly ignorant of this. What, yeah. what who are you guys? What do you do?
0: Um Field Nats are basically a group of people who just appreciate nature and mm-hmm. they have a lot of different groups who go out like they might have um say like a fungi group and they go out and they look for cool fungi out in um like temperate rainforest or people who just keen on invertebrates. But um obviously I do more stuff with vertebrates, with um mammals or reptiles. And yeah, we go out and we help out with actual scientific research projects or just Having a look, going for a walk in the bush and seeing what's there.
1: Bit of fun. But you're yeah. actually in the science part of that. So I am, you're obviously, yes. um, bringing some of the science, you know, yes. some of the research projects into that group. And so I, I suppose similar to what we were talking about earlier, it brings the, the community scientist into yeah, the Yeah, definitely. Group. yeah, definitely. It's,
0: it's, um, it's a bit of a citizen science opportunity for people to be involved. And it's not, um, very often that members of the public can be involved with threatened species work because, mm. um, it doesn't come up very often yeah. where people yeah. can just, yeah,
1: join. What's, what's next for the swamp skink? Are we, um, how, how are we proceeding now that you've seen some of them? Yeah. There's a relatively small number, I assume, that have been spotted. What, what's next?
0: So, uh, we're going to be continuing our surveys on the Mornington Peninsula to try and see if we can detect them at any more sites down there. Um, and then I guess from there we are trying to continue scientific research, trying to figure out what are the best methods, refining those because um, if we can refine those methods, we can help ecological consultants with their work as well. Mm. If they're going out and surveying in areas that are marked for development, they need to know how to best find these as quickly as possible.
1: Mm. And you're doing a PhD I am. Um, on a different subject. Yes. So quickly, before we let you go, <laughs> we've got to learn a little bit about that. What, yeah, what so
0: I, I, I jumped ship a little bit, still definitely looking at urbanisation, but totally different taxa. So I'm now looking at how urbanisation affects birds um, around the Melbourne urban growth area,
1: well, the dinosaurs became birds so that 's natural, yeah. <laughs> natural sort of extension <laughs> <to you. laughs>
0: but yeah, looking at how they um kind of how things have changed through time and then um also how things are changing right now
1: right, and how long have you got to
0: go oh i'm i 'm only four months in oh. so Years, yeah.
1: <laughs> forever. It feels like forever. At the stuff yes. does it, yeah. <laughs> just into, um thanks so much for chatting to us. It's really, uh, I mean, it's fascinating to hear this. And you know, as I said, William and I were, you know, saw this this bit of news, and we thought, yeah. wow, you know, we were just there. We just saw one of yeah, these things. It's obviously lucky. so rare to see them. And and you know, usually when we're down the Mornington Peninsula, there you see a lot of rats. So yes. I'm curious <laughs> as to how the the skinks actually interact with the the rat population that's on the yeah. foreshore because it's a bit, you know, it can be a bit nasty down there. But um, it's a great area. There's just so much uh, incredible ecology down there for people to discover. Yeah, so, definitely.
0: Good Beautiful stuff. Place.
1: Um, thanks so much for coming in, and no um, I hope uh, we get to talk about this uh, swamp skink in the in the future, and that it keeps going going strong down there.
0: Cool. Thank you.
1: Jacinta Humphrey is a PhD candidate at La Trobe University and a member of the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria. We're going to take a break for some station announcements, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our second guest for today. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Triple R. Three, Triple R. Ah. Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. It's a science show you've tuned into, and we have a very, very special guest in the studio now. Her name is Kim Johnson. She is from the ARC Centre of Excellence in Plant Cell Walls, which is in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. Kim, welcome and congratulations on being our 100th guest for 2017. Thank you very much.
4: I feel like this should be party poppers going. Well, on. I, <laughs> I, uh,
1: I thought about that and then I forgot. Um, so, cause I was going to do that. Uh, but you know, my people who know me know I um, don't remember shit. Um, but no, look, it, it's, it's a big deal because we, we have a lot of guests every year. And, um, this year, um, we did something different. I actually put out a call earlier in the week on Twitter for volunteer researchers to or well, uh, researchers who, researchers. researchers, <laughs> I'm, <who> are, researchers <laughs> I'm only a volunteer. Yeah, I'm not a real are, researcher. Who <laughs> are paid to volunteer <laughs> to then come into the to the station um because we wanted our basically our, our hundredth guest for the year to be, you know self-propelling self, self uh, propelling. and um and we ended up with oneth as well which is uh, 101st same thing uh who'll be coming in shortly after you but um we're here to talk about your work which is really interesting because you you look at how um organs sort of initiate and grow and i mean do we is this something we don't know a lot about give us a bit of a rundown of what's going on
4: Oh, well, so plants are really interested so i'm interested in how plant organs grow mm, yeah and if you think about it that's quite different from the way we grow so we're all probably used to putting a seed in the soil and out comes this amazing plant with all Mm. its leaves Mm. and flowers and fruit but that's you know very different from how we grow if we think about a human we are born with two arms two legs Head and yeah, a body, yeah. and that's it. They just get a bit bigger. They get bigger. Whereas yeah. plants can make new leaves, you know, mm. thread new mm. arms essentially that say, oh, right. I need yeah, another yeah. arm, I'll just make another one. Grow arm. another arm. You know, exactly. Yeah. Isn't that, so, I mean, that's amazing.
1: So yeah, I, I, I mean, I find, um, a lot of this stuff around plants is just fascinating, because one of the things, just sidebar here from your research, one, <laughs> one, one of the things, <laughs> things I, I read recently <laughs> was this, this scenario of how a flower on a plant tracks the position of the sun and how you had to you're either know, change the shape of the cell wall um in order to bend the plant so that and it was like how the hell does it do that and the bit that freaked me up it's not that it's doing it during the day but overnight because you know the sun goes down in the west mm. of, of the sky and you know the sunflowers pointing to the west and then overnight it goes oh I better change my shape and turn back to the east because that's where it's coming up, and it does that like that. That stuff just Isn't freaks that me out. It's incredible. It's incredible. It is.
4: So I mean, we often don't think of plants as being very responsive, mm. right? They're quite mm. still. They don't mm. move. They don't run around like us, um. But they do move, and they move on a different, very different sort of time scale to yeah, what yeah. we do. Yep. And they're really responsive to their environment, and that's because they. You know they have to be. They can't just get up and walk Mm. away if there's a storm. They can't go inside. They've just got to wear it. Suck it up. And so they they have to um, be responsive and be able to sense light. Um, wind and you know something I'm quite interested in is touch.
1: So that mm. kind of
4: wind. So how they can respond to a physical signal?
1: So physical signals being being the wind in that case, or, or objects hitting them, or Absolutely. rain. Absolutely. So as there's a lot
4: of lots of different ways you can think about touch. So it could be something like wind. It could be a rock in the way of you know a root growing, um, but also plants have to grow by this physical pressure. So mm. they're always. Experiencing this physical, physical pressure, whether it's coming from outside or inside.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I've always wondered with, um, I mean, you know, you, you might be able to answer this, but when when a plant say for example you damage one of the one of the arms of of a tomato plant but it's sort of partially still connected somehow the plant knows you know sorry i'm you know reordering the distribution of of resources elsewhere Mm. even though it's not completely damaged it's still you know it's not completely ripped off it's still connected you think it doesn't try and repair necessarily it'll just say no no it's it's not efficient to do that anymore
4: Exactly, so it can kind of shut that off and yeah. redirect its, you know, resources somewhere else and that's what's... They're so adaptive in that way. And so it's the same with a uh, touch response, for example. So it feels something coming from one direction and it responds, it changes its whole body shape, which mm. is I think amazing. And can also develop new organs, you know, in a different area based on those physical signals. Yeah.
1: So so what do we know about I mean, what do we know about how it actually goes about that? I mean that's your your work essentially. Absolutely. What,
4: what... So it has to have sensors, right? It has to have something that can receive this signal mm. and initiate response. Um, so that it It grows in a different way Okay. And so uh, that's what I'm really interested in I'm interested in what is that That actual thing that is sensing This physical stress
1: mm-hmm.
4: And resp- making the plant respond In a certain way
1: hmm. Okay, and, and do we know what that like, Have we determined what that is in the plant
4: Yes yeah, so it's, it's uh, Quite similar actually to how Fungus and animals respond So we're used to thinking about Um All the, all of these different organisms use something called a calcium channel. So this is where, um, if it experiences touch. It, then it moves calcium from the outside into the inside, and this acts like a signal to then initiate responses.
3: Okay. Uh, are you taking a comparative approach with this research too? So, you know, if you think about things like sensitive plants, you know, those, those plants, you touch mm, them and they yeah. fold their leaves up, right, to avoid herbivory, presumably. Um, now, other plants don't have that capability. So I guess I'm kind of interested in, again, the mechanism about how plants respond to touch but how that varies across plant species so you're looking at how different plants are doing what they're doing and and why so that's a you're
4: right those are really specialized
3: plants so they have
4: very you know special skin um that allows them to respond i'm more interested in the more universal um physical signals so these internal ones which all plants have to have because of the way they grow because they need to take up water and know yep. use that to inflate themselves so that they can stand upright and we've all seen the effects of when you know we don't water our plants enough yep. and they flop over um so they need this physical pressure to keep them upright and that's the, the cell wall is really important in that yep. because it's that um structure yep. that surrounds the cell to keep it strong hmm.
2: When we, um, if we're growing plants commercially, for argument's sake, so um, maybe a crop plant or something, then we do all kinds of stuff to get the best out of them. A- outside of breeding, we give them the right water, the right nutrients, the right whatever. We put them in the right soils and all and all that stuff. Is there any way that we could um, manipulate them physically to maximise either their robustness or or their productivity.
4: Absolutely. There's a fascinating practice in Japan where farmers go out and when their seedlings are really young, so their their wheat or their barley, they go and stand on them. So <laughs> wow. they, uh, they get their whole families, Heart they go princess. and tromp exactly, they go and tromp all <laughs> over their plants. Wow. And they do that because they get a better yield. These plants are actually ah. more resistant to the environmental stresses, and they grow better.
1: Is it selection based there? Like, do a third of them just die off, and the ones that are left are, are the stronger ones? Or? I don't.
4: I don't know about that. But you're right there's a very fine yeah, line yeah, i'm sure, sure between wounding and yeah, hurting them yeah, as yeah. opposed to um, getting them to grow better and that's i guess why if we do more research in this area maybe yeah, we can know yeah. where that fine line is mm. and actually use it more efficiently
1: now i want to come back for a second to the plant wall stuff and the cell wall stuff because i've, I've never really actually thought about why when a plant is not watered it sort of slumps i mean what specifically is structurally going on there like why it's, it's not like a you know like a human when you're sort of feeling a bit blue you and then you drop your shoulders. I mean, it's not the same thing. You know, this is um, this is quite a physical change to its structure. I mean, is it just that it's not filled with water or are the cell wall changing? What's happening? So,
4: and um, you know, plants are really different to us. They don't have a skeleton. They don't mm. have something to mm. hold them upright. So yeah. they have to have these strong... Cell walls. Um, so you can kind of think about it: an animal cell might be a, a sack of water, like a water balloon. Yep. Um, that's just what it is, right? So, but if you put that water balloon, say, in a Tupperware box, and then you know keep filling it up with water, it's 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 strong. You know? yeah, <laughs> it yeah, can't yeah. go anywhere. Yeah. So you stack a lot of Tupperware boxes on top of each other. You have kind of got a plant. Right, um, right? And you know, by keeping that that water pressure pushing out against that Tupperware box, you keep it really really
1: strong right so yeah so without the water the the cell walls you know kind of all crumpled together I mean
4: they'll stay there because you don't get the plant doesn't completely you know, collapse Um, but to grow a plant can't Mm. grow without that physical pressure pushing against the wall and then the wall either loosens or it Reinforces itself, so mm. it doesn't, you know, it maintains its integrity.
1: And when you when you examine this sort of stuff, uh, you know, for me, a lot of biology is done in what I would call the milkshake method. You know, where you you, you pop it in, you turn it up, and you you spit it through a a machine that tells you what it's made of is is that the way you go about it for this sort of work or is it all sort of microscope type work
4: yeah i mean i really like microscopy mm, yeah. you know plants are really beautiful yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um a lot of what i do is you know uh, taking a section so you cut it in a certain way so that you can see these cells and the cell structures so the cell wall and we have lots of um labels that we can use so that we can see what's happening in the in the cell wall mm. that's what we
1: look at when, when you look at the sort of and this is sort of a Similar to Ewan's question earlier, um, the evolution of plants, and you know, we have some plants that we know that were around the time of the Jurassic, and then we have other plants mm-hmm. that are relatively recent. Do you see? I'm not sure if you've looked at this, but would you see differences in the evolution of these signalling capabilities in those plants? So, the uh, I suppose, if you look at a weed, is it much better? at that than like a (laughs) a pine tree for example or something i mean is there are there huge differences that we see
4: so if i think about the the one that i'm interested in Hmm. this sensor it's there's only one of this Mm -hmm. in any plant you look at so it has been there since the very beginning and it's so so important because if you lose that you're dead so that's they have to maintain that and
2: how how far back does that go? is that are we going back to sort of you know do algae have the same thing do do uh, funguses bacteria how far back in the in the evolution so how wide could we go?
4: yeah, it first became a plant specialized form in algae right and then it's been maintained throughout all of plant evolution.
2: Well, I guess if it works
4: yeah exactly and so animals <laughs> have sort of s- some similar kind of things, but it's you know, the plant one is really, really different and really specialised for this function.
1: Oh, look, it's fascinating stuff. Kim, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this because it's really, I think it, people, you know, the Walk Plus past- past plants every day mm. and they pay no attention but as i said when i when i read that article a while back about you know flowers tracking the sun and mm. then, then working out where they needed to be before the next day i was like how the hell do they do that that is really just fascinating blow you away stuff and all of this stuff around the cell walls and how they communicate with their external environment the you know the wind the rain all those uh, the heat you know direct heat sunlight not sunlight you know indirect heat thermal yeah the whole lot is just it's fascinating They're It's They're really smart. Yeah, really smart, <laughs> really smart. Is your favorite film day the I love that book. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Great book. I thought it would be, but it's just a bit of a check. Um, you know, if you said World War Z, I'd be surprised, but you know. <laughs> yeah, you kind
4: of wonder who's controlling who, right? Oh, you, yeah. you know, I love coffee. I'm pretty sure plants are in charge <laughs> of my <laughs> life.
1: <laughs> well, it's either, it's either, cool. it's either the coffee beans or it's the grapes, yeah, right? Exactly. It's one or the other yeah. or the barley. I yeah, mean, yeah, there's yeah, about yeah. three plants there that are really taking control of humans Maybe. big time. And, so, to- and tobacco. Uh, used to be tobacco, yeah. Yeah, it used to be tobacco, <laughs> but tobacco's losing its grip. So, anyway, uh, Kim, thanks so much. You're our 100th hundred geth- guest for the year. It's great to have you in. Good luck with this work, and um, we'll chat again sometime thanks in the future. Thanks for having me. Kim Johnson is from the ARC Centre of Excellence in Plant Cell Walls in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a break for some tunes, and we'll be back in a moment with our 101st guest for the year, and our last guest for 2017, before we have our big final show next week. Three, triple ah. in the studio with us now there was a jack when Pearson. She's from the Center of Innate Immunity and Infectious Diseases at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research. Jacqueline, welcome to Triple R.
5: Hi Shane. Thanks for having me.
1: Now you were the you were the hundred and first guest for the year, which Thank when, you. when I when I hear that number, I realise why I'm losing my <laughs> It makes air. you tired, yeah. It makes me <laughs> tired. Um <laughs> because we have so many great guests coming in every year and, and you were one of the people on Twitter who who responded to my call during yes. the week. And about seven seconds after Kim, you got in, and I thought it's just unfair. So close. Yeah. So close. I thought we'll get you in anyway because your your work sounded super cool, um, and partly because I knew Chris KP was here, and you work on um, some of the causes of diarrhoea and all these things. And he, he's just not
2: verbal diarrhoea though. <laughs> oh oh oh. Oh, oh okay. I'm interested in that
5: too. I'm not a specialist oh. in
2: that. So. Oh. oh, I am. It's
1: okay. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm sure your work's still interesting. <laughs> Did
5: you <laughs> want me to leave now? Get someone else. The last hundred
1: guests were great. Yeah, that'd be good. Um Now, now but you work on things like a colo and so forth. And we were just chatting as you came in. That the colo gets such a bad rap. Yes, but it's not all bad. So run us through. First of all, what E. coli is, but how it affects people in different ways.
5: Okay, so E. coli is a a type of bacteria that's what we call ubiquitous in the environment. So it's everywhere. You'll find it in soil and water Mm -hmm. and you know, on some of the foods we eat. But not all of it is bad. And what makes it bad is um, some of the genes that it's acquired over evolution. So millions of years, it's come into contact with other bacteria. And it takes up little pieces of DNA that can make it nastier for humans but really it's just to help itself survive so Mm. once it's figured out that it can survive inside our guts and what it needs to do that it will keep doing that Mm. and i guess it becomes more dangerous when it picks up pieces of dna that we're not used to seeing in combination yeah. So they can um, produce toxins and they can make us very ill. They can have antibiotic resistance and make us very ill. So it's just, you know, those bits mm. and pieces that can make it nastier. So, so when,
1: when we... I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, we've been talking a bit today about evolution in various mm. species and so forth, and I think we forget that with viruses and bacteria that mm. evolution can happen over a very, very short period yeah, okay. relative to our lifespan. So although Chris may have had a coli in him that uh, didn't cause him any problems, by the time it gets to me three weeks later... The cat sat on the it could have presumably yes. picked up some of this well, other genetic materials. Yeah, right? Yeah, it
5: just depends on where it is in the environment so if we're looking at feeding cattle lots of antibiotics mm. and then they're carrying lots of bacteria and they're picking up antibiotic resistant genes and then we're eating some of that food then that's when it can become a bit of a problem. Mm. And that happens very quickly because yes, they evolve super quick not like us. When you think about the amount of times the bacteria will, yeah. you know, divide in a few hours, it's not like us we take lifetimes and they can just take a few hours.
1: But presumably though there's a there's a core element of a coli that's just damn good, yeah. like it doesn't, you know, like I Hips. always think in terms of evolution, like for me, the benchmark is the crocodile, yep. you know, of like <laughs> I, I got to be awesome and I just stopped evolving, because you know, seriously, nothing's, nothing's job, done. Yep, job done, I'm yep. good I'm mm, doing whips. my job, you know, I'm eating people off, off uh, parts <laughs> of Australia, I'm, I'm all good, I mean, E. coli must be the same in that regard, that as, as a as a core element, yes. it's pretty damn good. Yeah, absolutely,
5: right. it's efficient it has all the elements that it needs to survive, and, and that's what it just keeps Doing in, in the environment.
1: Mm. So, so, what are they for, for something like a coli? I assume not killing the host is a good thing.
5: Yes, not killing the host for normal E. coli, so they don't have what we call virulence genes. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that will make us very sick. Um, but also the ones that do cause disease are very careful about how much disease they actually cause, right. and that's where we start to call them clever. And we know that bacteria don't think, but they have a whole bunch of genes that will cause inflammation, but a whole bunch of genes that will stop inflammation at the same time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So they have this balance I didn't going know on. That. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's why if you get a, a some types of E. coli, they'll just make you a bit sick, and that's, but they've done their job. They've given you diarrhea, which means they've grown to high numbers in your gut, yep. and they've disseminated yep. out into the environment again, and that's exactly what that's they, all want they wanted to do. to do. That's all they yeah. wanted to do.
1: But they still stick around in your gut. Beyond that. Um, they, we?
5: Well some of them can, I would imagine so, but I think that it depends on the balance of bacteria that's in your gut. It'll probably, you know, restore its balance um again and, and kick out those kinds of nasty bacteria.
1: And in, in terms of so when that process happens, so I, I you know I end up with E. coli mm-hmm. and I end up with the diarrhea mm-hmm. scenario, is what comes out yes. basically an evolved version of what went in or is it essentially just more of the same generally?
5: it's a really good question it, I'm, I'm sure in some people it would come out as a more evolved version but mm. typically it's going to come out exactly the same and there are studies that have shown you know bacteria that comes out of a host what we call a host is more nasty than when it comes in and, mm. and i think that's a lot, a lot of work that people probably haven't done specifically on that you have to have someone who's got that interest got that funding to actually drive that research yeah but it's yeah. like
1: it's not 12 o'clock yet but it's okay uh, to talk about the stuff before people have lunch that's that. That. right before you have lunch <laughs> um, so just so um,
2: as you say you know once the the bacteria has uh, been introduced mm-hmm. to your body, it mm-hmm. does what it needs to do, and and that's great. And mm. then you're saying that you know at least at least often the the uh, the local bacteria will you know will basically get rid of the the introduced mm. stuff. Is that just a matter of out competing them, or is it more active than that?
5: It, it is both. Um, so out competing is a, is a huge component because a lot of these bacteria are very abundant in our gut, and mm. they sit on top of that mucus layer, protecting things from getting in. And these nasty right. bacteria are able actually to get down through that mucus layer and attach to our actual cells underneath. So if you've got an abundance of a certain kind of bacteria, it's going to be producing components that um, the nasty bacteria probably aren't going to like so much, but it's usually why the nasty bacteria do are able to get down because they themselves produce products that can change the balance of what's in your gut as well. So once they get down there and they start causing inflammation and disrupting what's underneath, it kind of breaks up that barrier where the mucus and the cells stick together and then the normal gut bacteria starts to be able to get down to those layers and then the body's all starts to freak out and you yeah, have yeah, hyperimmune yeah. responses and things like that.
1: Now, now you you've sent through some of the information you sent through indicated that there's a very specific sort of mechanical approach mm. to the way that bacteria sort of wax our immune yes. system. I mean, talk through that because that's just yeah. fascinating to me.
5: Okay, so let's just say E. coli, nasty E. coli, Salmonella and Shigella, we're mm-hmm. familiar with yep. those. They use something called a type 3 secretion system and it literally is a needle that it builds onto its surface <laughs> and it... Um, punctures holes into our gut cells and directly delivers what we call um, virulence proteins into our cells and they go in very quickly and they shut down our early immune responses really specifically so really specific biochemical mechanisms and they do many multiple of them that's amazing and so everything just gets quiet and we kind of don't know they're there to start with and they cause their damage and um, then our body is able to respond after a while
1: i mean I just say, wow, but um, how common is it for bacteria, viruses, any Mm. any of the above, to use a combination of a physical, Mm. mechanical attack and a chemical attack?
5: It's very common for lots of bacteria and actually lots of viruses, even though they don't have that mechanism, they have genes that will produce proteins that specifically shut down these immune responses. Mm. So for all these ones that make us sick, that's exactly what they're doing. They're hiding first. So that they can actually grow to higher numbers and cause disease.
3: So whenever I think about parasites mm. and hosts, I think of an arms race. Yeah. And so, you know, these things are getting their needles out and whacking the immune system, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And presumably though that the immune system through time is trying to find a better way of recognizing right. this early on and saying, yeah. actually you're not gonna do that to me. Yeah. Um so is there a lot of research happening around how does the body, I guess, responds to that early sort yeah. of, you know, mechanical disruption and, yes. and what, what's happening there?
5: Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of research going on on what our bodies are doing. And what the bacteria are doing. But because the bacteria and the viruses are evolving quicker, Course, yeah. then, um, the, you know, it, there's a lot of research. That it's called host pathogen interactions. Yep. And that's what we all are really excited about. People like me anyway. Mm.
1: That's <laughs> cool stuff. <laughs> it, it seems to me as though we've existed alongside E. coli for a very, mm-hmm. very, very long time. And, and usually when you see that sort of coexistence, there's advantage yes. um, for both, you know, for both species Absolutely. because essentially if there's no advantage for us at all, it either kills off Or, you know, it would sort of, it wouldn't work this way. That's right. Um, so what's the advantage to us in having E. coli around?
5: Yeah. So I think, you know, our guts are full of different types of bacteria and E. coli is a, is a, you know, a large part of that. So these bacteria literally do, um, help us metabolize, you know, what we eat. And so that's really important. Otherwise we wouldn't be full of them um Mm. and Mm. and you know they're getting what they need and we're getting what we we need and they help protect you know what's beneath as well so when a nasty bacteria comes through it's more likely that it's going to you know pass through if there's not that much of it you have to have enough of it to cause disease
1: Mm. i I always i always love looking at exceptions to rules in nature Are are there any species on earth that don't coexist with e. coli like is there a bird where it just you just don't find it there are
5: there are types of bacteria that you won't get that exist in animals and won't yep. exist in us And there, okay. are, there are specifically types of ones that cause disease that will live in bats and birds and things mm. and then they, yeah. they, they really yep. do cause disease in yep. us and then there'll be bacteria that you only get in lizards and mm. um, snakes that you don't get in humans at all mm. so yeah i,
3: know, you're right. I was just oh, gonna yeah. say i guess this also brings you into the world of microbiome research, I yes, assume, as well, that's right, trying yeah. to understand where E. coli fits into that equation.
5: Yeah, that's right. And I guess what we're really interested in is when you get a gut infection or something like inflammatory bowel disease, what happens to your gut microbiome? Mm, yeah. um, and, and we can use these bacteria to really study that because getting a nasty gut infection is almost like having a chronic inflammatory yep. disease in your gut. So we're trying to use it to work out what it is about our immune system that's important in controlling those inflammatory. Yep
1: disorders yeah the microbiome is one of those few areas <laughs> there's a few there's a few of these at the moment yeah. you know uh immunotherapy for cancer there's a few of them mm. that within 10 years mm. like we're going to see over the next 10 years just an explosion Absolutely. of information i mean yeah. you agree because it's just yeah. it just seems as though we yeah. know so little yeah. right now yeah. but we're learning so quickly yes,
5: relatively we do yeah yeah
1: yeah look it's fascinating stuff i think um i mean people are going to have to have their lunch in a couple of minutes and we're going to go so okay. we're, we're going to stop this discussion about diarrhea <laughs> um but jacqueline thanks so much for coming in and and um, and for and for communicating via Twitter on the show, because it was so great to get you in that way we don't normally recruit our local guests we get a lot of international guests via Twitter, but not our local guests so um it's great having uh I hope you let the team at the hudson institute that oh, you're yeah. coming in good, oh, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah always yeah. nice. Uh, Thanks for chatting us today, and and good luck with uh, this ongoing research. It's really interesting.
5: Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me.
1: Jacqueline Pearson is from the Centre of Innate Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Hudson Institute of Medical Research, um, a place where we've had a lot of guests over the last couple of years, actually. They're very good down there. So we're going to have to... Finish up. Uh, You probably have to go and train for your big karate. No, uh, I've got to go and watch my daughter do a piano concert, actually. Oh, really? Much nicer. Much nicer. Um, I'm actually going to a park with my karate school. Nice. Um, We're just going to go and beat some people up. It's a family day. Maybe don't do that. No, we don't (laughs) don't do that. In fact, if if anyone looked at us, they'd go, what (laughs) did all those old old guys do? And if we didn't have our kids and our partners in that area. It would look a bit weird. But uh, <laughs> Fortunately, we, we we get away with some stuff. Ewan, thanks so much. Good to see you, buddy. We'll Chris see you back. again next week, hopefully. Indeed. And uh, Chris KP, good to see you too. Yes, likewise. Thank you. Folks, we have one show left for the year next year. Um, we basically invite every one of our hosts in, and they'll all be reflecting on, on their greatest moments and things of interest throughout the year they've seen in science. So it'll be a really big, fun show, and we'll be eating and drinking before the show, which will make it even more fun. um but until then, we're going to leave you uh, with the team from edith I'm Dr Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein Gogo Go-Go uh, yet again and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.